You know, in the New Testament, being New Testament believers, we sometimes take for granted the accessibility that we have. Um, the fact that we can come at any time, bow our heads and say, Lord, in Jesus' name, I come before your throne, and you immediately have audience with God. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a system. You don't have to go through a pastor. You can go directly to God and have an intimate relationship with him. And sometimes I think we take that for granted, and some people... Um, I think even too much for granted. We come and become almost too familiar. Although I don't think you can become too intimate with the Lord. The idea is some people talk about my old buddy in the sky, slap on the back sort of an approach to God. We need to have reverence for the Lord. And the best way to look at the access we have in the New Testament is to compare it with the Old Testament. By the time you get done through with Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, it's just like... Oh, I'm so glad that Jesus came to fulfill all of that and uh, to have access to God. I grew up in a church that was very austere and the clergymen wore robes, many of them, and um, it was always, when you came into church, what we did, it wasn't music like what we had tonight. It was very, very different. And, um, you know, shh, you're in the house of God. Don't run in the house of God. And sit up straight in the house of God. I grew up having to sit with my parents during every church service. I grew up hating church. I thought, you know, God, you can't talk loud because I don't, God wants you to whisper. And uh, you can't uh, sing joyful. It, it, was, it was so austere. It was very much like the Old Testament. And uh, when, when I, I, I felt so much like Martin Luther when I started reading the New Testament. And I thought, boy, Jesus is so much different than the way he's being portrayed or has been portrayed all my life. And there was such a liberty of approach. And uh, I have never ceased to appreciate that uh, since becoming a Christian uh, in 1973. That's when I was five years old. No, I'm just kidding. I was 18 at the time. Would you turn in your Bible, thou shalt not lie, I know. Turn in your Bibles tonight to um, Exodus chapter 27. Before I show you the video, I want to kind of refresh ourselves in um, this section of Scripture. If you were an Israelite... Thousands of years ago in the desert, you would be a typical Israeli. You'd have your tent. You'd have all of your children in the tent. You had, of course, a two-camel garage if you were upper middle class. and You were a mobile society. You were moving from place to place. You were on your way out of Egypt through a very desolate place through the Sinai Peninsula, on your way to a land that God promised that you would inhabit. The very center of your camp was this thing called the tabernacle. It was at the very center of Jewish life. It wasn't on the outskirts. There wasn't a tabernacle here, and then, of course, a tabernacle in your neighborhood, a little bit closer with a little different kind of worship that you could pick and choose. There was one tabernacle. It was in the center. The camps of Israel were divided around the tabernacle. East, west, north, and south. You were pitched according to the banner and the standards of the tribes of Israel. The reason it was at the center, of course, is very obvious. God is to be at the center of life. He's to be the hub. Everything revolves around Him. And that's a good picture of the Christian life. There's a lot of people who say... Well, I think I need religion, as if they add something extra to their lives. It's another spoke in their wheel. And this society sort of fosters that. You, the great you, are at the center. You're the hub, and everything revolves around you, and you have this in your life and that in your life, all these spokes. And, of course, God is one of the spokes to serve you. Not so. 
God is to be at the center of life, and everything revolves around Him. As you would approach the tabernacle, you looked at a fence, if you remember last week. By the way, did you get the handouts tonight of the tabernacle? So you've got a map there. Great. As you approached from the east, you would notice that the fence was seven and a half feet tall, taller than most people. You had no access. You couldn't just gaze in. Seven and a half feet tall, 75 feet wide, 150 feet deep. The gate that you looked upon that brought you into the courtyard was 30 feet wide with embroidered work that is described as we saw last week in our chapters. The first article that you came up against was an altar. You could look through the gate and you could see that there was this brass altar that has been raised up seven and a half feet square. That is seven and a half feet uh, long and wide and four and a half feet tall. You saw that it was made out of brass, not gold this time like the articles in the holy place and the holy of holies were gold. The article was made out of brass. And you saw priests that were standing around and they were doing some things that, well, by today's standards would flip a lot of us out. They were slitting the throats of innocent animals. And there was blood everywhere. To be in the ministry in those days meant that you had blood-stained garments that you wore. And of course, though, you try to be meticulous. If they were blood-stained, next time you offered a sacrifice, they'd have to be new garments. The old garments were used, the threads of which were used for the wicks, for the menorah, the golden lampstand inside the tabernacle later on the temple. But the idea was very obvious. You cannot approach God without a blood sacrifice. You don't run into the tabernacle, hey God, hallelujah. You have to come by way of blood. Before worship comes sacrifice. And the sacrifice is the life of someone innocent. We call this the vicarious atonement. That is, something or someone takes the place for you. A substitute. A lamb. And as we'll see tonight, if we get that far, it became the typical day in Israel where there was a lamb slaughtered in the morning and a lamb slaughtered every evening, every day of the year. So there was this continual sacrifice, morning and evening, to atone for the sins of Israel. Besides that, there were other sacrifices. There was the burnt offering and the fellowship offering and, and, and a whole host of uh, ways of approaching God, and they all have different meanings to them. Behind the brass altar, there was another article of brass, brass and copper later on. That was a laver for washing where the priest would wash his hands, wash his feet ceremonially before taking uh, part in any of the sacrifices. The blood that was drained out by the altar outside, that altar of sacrifice, was then also the blood that was taken in to the holy place and uh, once a year by the high priest in the holy of holies and sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant. Now what is interesting is that the articles in the outer court were brass. As you get closer to the tabernacle inside, the articles are gold and eventually solid gold. The mercy seat, for instance, on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a solid slab of gold. The cherubim that stretched over that were solid gold. It becomes more precious and more costly as you get nearer to the fellowship or the presence of God. The farther away you are, when it deals with sacrifice, you deal in metals of brass. The closer you get to the holiness of God, to the presence of God, it becomes gold. Brass is therefore seen as a metal that speaks of judgment, judgment of sin. Gold becomes a metal of royalty or the metal of the majesty of God because of its preciousness and its rarity and its value. In the book of Numbers, the children of Israel did what they were good at, complaining. There was a time where they just, I don't know, they, they forgot that they complained last week and God judged them. They forget all about these things. They start complaining again. I wish we were back in Egypt. It was great in Egypt. We had good food. 
We got this stupid bread. And uh, we're wandering around the desert. And at one point, because of their complaining, it says that God caused fiery serpents to slither their way into the camp of Israel, biting people and killing them. And of course, as soon as a few people died, you know, there's nothing like suffering that causes us to cry out for mercy. So they start crying out to God, and God says, Moses, make out of brass a snake and put it on a pole. And as people gaze at that serpent on the pole, when they look from afar and they see the snake, the serpent on the pole, raised up high, lifted up at the camp of Israel, if they look, they will be healed. It was a look of faith. There was nothing in the brass. It was not any kind of a holy icon. The idea is it was a look of faith as that symbol of judgment, the snake upon the pole, was lifted up that the plague ceased. Now Jesus kind of used that as an analogy. As Moses, he said, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is made sin for us. Jesus, you could say, went to the brass altar so that we could go into the very holy of holies. There was a veil that separated us between outside and, and God. Our sin separated us. The veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross. He offered his own blood that was sprinkled. So you could look at it as Jesus took care of the sacrifice at the brass altar, figuratively using the Old Testament as an analogy, so that we could have fellowship with God in the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. So a parallel to all of these teachings is, of course, the book of Hebrews, written to Hebrew Christians who were used to the sacrificial system. And when they read the book of Hebrews, it must have been incredibly liberating. They must have sat there and just went, wow. You mean... Jesus did it all. It's all fulfilled in him. And just the liberation of the approach must have been awesome. Um, in chapter 27, it speaks about this altar of sacrifice. And um, you might want to look at the tabernacle this way. The tabernacle or that structure, including all of its furnishings, was a means of keeping the covenant with God. God is at the center. God's want, God wants worship. It's at the center of the camp so that their minds, their life is focused upon God. It's a means by which they can worship God. It's a means by which also they can maintain the covenant when it is broken. Now, even though God made this covenant of the law of Moses, God obviously knew that they were not able to keep it. Skip, how do you know that? Because God commanded a brass altar to be made so that animals would be killed to atone for their sins. God knew that they were sinners, that they needed a place of atonement, that the covenant would be busted. And so to make provision for the broken covenant that God knew would happen, the sacrifices are instituted and this brass altar is given. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, verse 1, five cubits long, five cubits broader. That's seven and a half feet going by the cubit. There's a couple different cubits that the Talmud speaks about, and the idea here is, I think, seven and a half feet, translating it into Americanisms. And its height shall be three cubits, or four and a half feet. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes. Now, as you read this, keep this in mind, because you're about to see in this video some of these articles reconstructed today. You shall make its pans to receive its ashes, its shovels, its basins, its forks, its fire pans. You shall make its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze. And on the network, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. And you shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown you on the mountain 
uh, so they shall make it. And then you shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings of the court woven of fine linen thread, a hundred cubits long for one side. Now let me give you the gist of the next several verses in your mind. And you've got a picture of it. Seventy-five feet wide, as you look at it, you're looking at the east side of it. 150 feet deep by the 100 cubit measurement here. So 75 by 100, that's the outer court. If you notice the diagram, besides the superior view of it, the super inferior view, you've got a little picture uh, passed out to you. And you see all those poles that are along the sides with that cloth that is stretched between them. That's the outer court. Seven and a half feet tall is that fence. You notice inside is another structure. And the structure is called the tabernacle proper. And you've got a tent, basically. And that tent structure is 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. It's divided into two sections. The holy place, the holy of holies. The holy place is, again, 15 feet wide, 30 feet deep in which on the right-hand side, if you were able to walk in, you'd see the table of showbread on the right-hand side. On your left-hand side, the menorah or the lampstand. And right before the veil that separates the holy place and the holy of holies is the altar of incense, the articles that you saw last week that we brought out here on the stage. Inside of that veil, the holy of holies, 15 by 15, and the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat on top of it. That tent structure, you remember, has four layers of material. From the inside out, it was fine white linen as the first covering. So that if you were a priest and you looked, it was this pure white canopy covering. On top of that was goat's hair covering. It could be white or black or brown. Goats come in different colors. So the thing you saw inside was pure white. Over that was goat's hair. Over the goat's hair was ram's skin dyed red. Over the ram's skins dyed red were badger skins, or as the word in Hebrew could be translated, porpoise skins, or the skins of sea lions. It's hard to know exactly what it was, but it formed something that was light-tight. It kept the elements out, and it maintained the beauty within. The only source of light, therefore, was the menorah. And it's all very figurative. It's, it, it's an incredible picture of Jesus Christ. There's one door to the tabernacle. Jesus said, I am the door. There's one source of light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And the menorah had one stem, one um, vine, you could say, with branches that came out. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. There's all sorts of figures that you could pick up on. The most important figure is the mercy seat, where the blood was sprinkled by the high priest. And that word in the New Testament is propitiation. That's a word, if you've read it in the King James or New King James, or I don't know if it's in the New American Standard or not, but you looked at that word, he's the propitiation for our sins. And you thought, that's a weird word. What does that mean? The word propitiation is a Greek word, hilasterion, which is the Greek word if you had a Greek Old Testament, a Septuagint version, that's translated mercy seat. Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. The blood of Jesus Christ that is between God and the broken law and continually cleanses a man from all sin. So that's the... Uh, the cord, and there's some beautiful colors, and you could see symbolism in some of the colors if you wanted to. But on um, verse 16 of chapter 27, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long. Now, this is the entry gate. 20 cubits in its width, 20 cubits long is 30 feet. Woven of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. You could see blue is the color of heaven, scarlet is the color of sacrifice, purple is the color of royalty. And fine linen thread made by a weaver, it shall have four pillars and four sockets. And the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver, and their hooks shall be silver, and their sockets of bronze. The first gate was a veil. Beyond that veil, there were two other veils 
Now, you in your mind, reading the New Testament, are familiar with only one veil because of the uh, temple. The tabernacle in the New Testament doesn't appear. The temple appears. And the video is going to bring that out. But I'm giving you a lot of introductions so when you see this, you'll know, notice the differences. There's a gate 30 feet wide. Beyond the gate, the courtyard. You have that sacrificial altar, laver where the priest would wash, and then that tabernacle, that tent, 15 by 45 feet deep. There was a veil whereby the priest could go into the holy place. There was another veil where the high priest could go into the holy of holies. That is the veil in the temple that is ripped, that final veil. The curtains or the veils meant something. It meant, number one, inclusion, and number two, exclusion. It included the priests. It included the articles of furniture. It excluded people. It excluded sinners. You could only enter by one gate through sacrifice. Same with the temple. The temple had courts, several courts. And as we said last week, and I don't want to rehash it, they were inclusive and exclusive. They would include certain people and exclude others. The tabernacle was moved from place to place. It came into the promised land. It was at Shiloh, up in Samaria. And uh, I was in Israel one time, and I always wanted to see this place. They said, oh, you don't want to go to Shiloh. I said, yes, I really do want to go to Shiloh. And, no, you don't want to go to Shiloh. It's the West Bank, and there's a lot of riots that take place over there. And, and uh, they stone the buses. And th this isn't new. This has been going on for years. So if you're thinking, I'll never go to Israel after what's happening, you could say... As we've said, we've had this conversation every year. Something goes on over there. So I decided um, I wanted to see Shiloh. So when the rest of the tour went to Jerusalem, I rented a car, northern Israel, and just drove through the West Bank on my own. And the tour guide said, ah, oh, you shouldn't do that. I said, I know, but I want, I want to see it. And uh, so, you know, I prayed, Lord, protect me. And, and as I was praying, I noticed an, an Israeli soldier who was hitchhiking, he had his hand out, and the Israeli soldier had his Uzi. He was dressed in uniform. I thought, this is the guy I want riding with me. So I picked him up, and I took him all the way down to Jerusalem, through the West Bank, through Shiloh, through Nablus, so I could you know, get an idea of where Joshua, the son of Nun, was buried, and the hell of Shiloh overlooking Samaria, and get a, a view of that. But I don't know why I said that. This is called digression. Let me get back to the issue here. The, the, the tabernacle was put at Shiloh, and, and later on, David had it in his heart to bring the tabernacle to a permanent dwelling place. He said, you know, I, here I am in this beautiful palace, and the, uh, the ark of God is in these tents, these curtains. I want to build a temple for God. Of course, God says, David, you're a man of blood. I won't let you do it. Solomon was the one that built a temple. He built an incredible edifice upon the place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, his son. Moriah, the land of Moriah, the Temple Mount later on. He builds it. Later on, because Israel sins, Nebuchadnezzar destroys it in 586 B.C. It's leveled. Well, after 70 years, the people come back to the land. They rebuild it through Zerubbabel. Fun name. Zerubbabel. Ezra and Nehemiah. Later on, however, the temple is desecrated with its courts and its holy place and holy of holies by an insane man named Antiochus Epiphanes the Syrian. The Maccabees gain control again. By that time, the New Testament comes into view. Herod the Great comes on the scene and builds or expands the temple. Now, in the video that you're about to see, um, you're gonna, it's, it was put up out by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Now, here's the interesting thing. As you know, there is no temple. There's a mosque that the Muslims say Muhammad ascended up into heaven, received the Koran, came back to the earth. So it's a holy shrine to the, uh, to the Muslims, to the Arabs. And um, yet, there's this group of people in Jerusalem, rabbis, scholars, who are working toward the rebuilding of the temple. I mean, they're not just talking about it. They've got plans drawn up. 
I've seen some of the electrical diagrams, which is interesting in and of itself. You're trying to, you know, they're trying to look through all of the rabbinic literature to develop something that's original, yet they have an electrical diagram for the temple. Kind of an oxymoron, just thinking about that. They have the vestments of the priests, and you're going to see some of them tonight as prescribed in the very scriptures you're going to read. But you're going to be able to see some of those vestments that have been made. And they're training the Kohenim, once again, the priesthood uh, for the temple. Uh, they've constructed the band that went across the high priest's head that you'll read about in these chapters that said holiness or sanctified unto the Lord. And uh, you'll see the courts of the temple in a few different places. It gives you a little bit of a synopsis, but it's like a computer run-through uh, of what it was like to walk through. And, and, and what they did at computers is awesome because it shows the Nicanor gates, these huge golden gates, that man that sat at the gate beautiful in the New Testament. These are these huge gold gates, and they open up, and they take you into the, the temple itself. And so I thought that uh, to get a visual idea, I'd bring the video. And you know, I love stuff like this to visualize it. So let's cut the light. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got to figure this out. It's on VCR. It's power. Um, now, don't do it, John. I want to do it. I, this is really important to me. <laughs> Stop, pause, play. There it is. See? Did it work? Just go ahead and push it. With the passing of 400 years, the descendants of Abraham are numbered at 600,000 as they made their way from slavery to freedom on their journey through the Sinai Desert. Their destination was the Promised Land. At the foot of Mount Sinai, the children of Israel erected a tabernacle of gold-plated cedar wood. In the Holy of Holies of this structure stood the Ark of the Covenant, and into it were placed the two tablets of stone which Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. And so began the earliest days of the temple, as it awaited its permanent appointed location in Jerusalem. At the conclusion of another 400 years, David, youngest son of Jesse, was anointed king over Israel. One night, the Jebusite city, later to be known as Jerusalem, was conquered by David's troops. Little could they have known that the dawning of the next morning would bring with it the beginning of a new historical process, a process which would transform Jerusalem into the national and spiritual center of the Jewish people. The fertile land surrounding the city was transformed into fruitful green gardens that brought forth enough for the basic sustenance of the city's inhabitants. And on the southern slopes of the mountain, the Kidron Valley was watered by the Gihon Spring, the original source of the most essential ingredient for survival of the residents of Jerusalem. Nearer to the northern side of the city rose up the mountain regarded as sacred from time immemorial, Mount Moriah. It was to this destination that the patriarch Abraham was sent to submit himself to the maximum test in order to prove his great faith. At the height of Mount Moriah stood the threshing floor of Aravna, which King David purchased. On this spot, the same spot where Isaac was bound, King David built an altar and brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. When Solomon, David's son, ascended the throne, he concentrated his energies on the internal structuring of the nation and its economic development. 
At the same time, he continued the expansion and building of Jerusalem, whose apex was achieved in the construction of the Holy Temple. At the conclusion of seven years, the temple stood in all its splendor. Into it were placed the tabernacle and the sacred vessels. The first temple was dedicated at the conclusion of 480 years from the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. Let us look at the temple which Solomon built. The twin pillars, known as Yachin and Boaz, were placed at the sides of the entrance to the sanctuary. In the courtyard, next to the copper wash basins, stood the famed Brazen Sea, which King Solomon constructed. The first temple became the center of sanctity and prophecy, and the designated location for the performance of the divine service in the hallowed courtyards before the presence of God. But the golden age of Jerusalem did not last long. Even as Solomon reigned, idolatrous practices crept into the fabric of society. The prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah, as well as those who followed, warned against an ethical deterioration which would lead to destruction. And so it came to pass that in the reign of King Hezekiah, Jerusalem was destroyed by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The city's population was led into exile and Jerusalem lay desperate. During this period of desolation, the importance of Jerusalem took on a new dimension as the anticipation to return to her became the heartfelt prayer and watchword of every Jew. The very destruction of Jerusalem itself served to strengthen the national will to return and rebuild her. By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. We hung up our harps on the weeping willows. The era of the return to Zion and the land of Israel began when Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a divinely inspired proclamation for the people of Israel to return and rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Close to the holiday of Passover, the festival which symbolizes the redemption and the beginning of national identity for the Jewish people, the construction of the second temple was completed. The beautiful edifice of the second temple stood in all its glory overlooking the city of Jerusalem. The everyday life of the city existed in the shadow of the temple and the divine presence. Entry into the holy temple complex was gained through various bridges and wide staircases, as well as tunnels accessed through the Holda gates and leading into the Temple Mount complex. In this manner, one found himself in the enclosures of the house of God, while before him stands the courtyard and the place of the altar, where the column of smoke rises up towards the heavens. Here is how the house of God appeared during the era of the second temple. We find ourselves presently in the women's court, passing by the various chambers which surround it. This is the place where the famous festival of the water libation is celebrated during the holiday of Sukkot, the tabernacles. Opposite us, 15 stairs rise up to the feet of the Nicanor gates, the main gates of the courtyard. We are now in the court of Israel. 
The daily and special holiday sacrifices in the temple were offered by the priests on the altar, which was constructed of stones and earth. At the Temple Institute, located in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, the sacred vessels used in the Holy Temple service are being restored and recreated. sanctify their hands and feet from this vessel, the copper laver, the copper wash basin and stand. And this is done in a very specific manner, at once, both the hands and feet. With the right over the right and the left over the left, the Kohen must sanctify his hands and feet with water from the copper wash basin. So this is really the first vessel which would be used every day in the temple. And the wash basin is comprised of three sections the wash basin itself, the stand, as the verse specifies, and you shall make the laver of copper and its stand of copper, and the muchni, a reservoir which was added during the era of the second temple by one of the high priests, Ben Katin, in order to circumvent one of the problems of ritual impurity. In the holy temple, the ordinary or lay priests wore a uniform of four garments, an outer robe or tunic, a belt, pants, and a turban. Now the garments are really one time only until they become stained because even though the priests are very diligent in their labors, if a garment becomes stained or ripped, those garments are not washed, but they are shredded and, and those garments become the wicks for the candelabra, the menorah, which is lit in the courtyard of the temple twice daily. The high priest wore an additional four garments called the golden garments, a cloak of the blue color techelit, a vest, a breastplate, and a crown of pure solid gold bearing the inscription, Sanctified to God. The priest began the daily schedule of the divine service in the temple by sanctifying his hands and feet from the water of the copper laver. In his work of officiating with the services, he utilized various vessels. A pure silver shovel was used to remove leftover ashes from the altar every day at dawn. And a copper cart was used to remove the ashes from the altar. While the sacrifice was being offered on the outer altar in the courtyard, Another priest brought the golden incense chalice, filled with the eleven spices of the incense offering, to the golden incense altar inside the sanctuary. An additional service conducted in the inner sanctuary of the temple was the lighting of the seven candles of the temple menorah and the upkeep of the flames. The menorah was a seven-branched candelabrum made of one piece of solid gold. The service of the menorah was aided by its accessories, a pitcher designated for pouring the olive oil into the cups, and a vessel complete with tweezers and brush designed for the cleaning of the menorah, as well as placing the wicks into the individual cups. All the Kohanim, the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were charged with officiating in the service of the temple, the Levites were responsible for the musical service of the temple, which is no less important, which also has a tremendous amount of significance. And there were many types of musical instruments in the temple, and one of them is the nevel, the harp. And this harp is the closest rendition to a harp from this period of time, because it's based not only on sources, it's also based on a drawing which was found in an archaeological 
dig in the north of Israel in the area called Megiddo, which was validated by archaeologists to be from the time of the Second Temple. And this harp has 22 strings, which correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, also a mystical concept. And of course, it's much smaller than contemporary harps that would sit on the floor. This has to be portable. The Levites, the choir members, would bring it out of storage and carry it up to the uh, ramp, which stood in front of the altar. And while the Kohanim, the priests, were officiating in the service, the Levites would stand on the ramp and play the song of the day and the various other songs that would accompany the service. The breastplate was one of the four golden garments of the high priest. The oracle-like aspect of the breastplate, which enabled questions to be answered through divine guidance, is called the Orim Vatumim. During the course of events, it transpired upon occasion that the Jewish people were faced with matters of grave consequence, matters whose very essence were of such a fateful nature for the future of the congregation that they were deemed to warrant the seeking of divine guidance. An example of such an event would be the question of whether or not to go out in battle. Either the king or the leading officer of the army would seek the aid of the stones of the breastplate, which was worn over the heart of the high priest. This process would be conducted in the following manner. The priest stood facing the Ark of the Covenant, and the questioner would ask, Shall I go out to battle against the Edomites, and will I be successful? And through the shining letters which form the names of the tribe of Israel would come the answer, Rise up and be met with success. Three times a year, each Jew is commanded to make a pilgrimage to the temple, to be seen there by God and to bow before him. On the festival of Passover, each family or group of neighbors in the congregation of Israel would bring its Passover sacrifice to be offered in the holy temple. The pilgrims would first purify themselves, utilizing one of the many mikvaot, ritual baths. The rings are to facilitate the slaughtering of the sacrifice. The small columns aid in skinning the animal and the marble tables are for washing the parts of the sacrifice in preparation for offering upon the altar. On the afternoon of the 14th day of Nisan, the eve of Passover, the entire multitude of Israel arrived at the temple with their Passover sacrifice. In order to accommodate the large number of sacrifices, the priests stood on long lines and quickly passed the Mizrakot containing the blood of the offering up the line to the priest standing closest to the altar. There, the blood was poured out onto the foundation of the altar. The service was accompanied by music from the Levite choirs and included the harp, lyre, and silver trumpets. The trumpets of the temple can be seen to this very day in the bas-relief of the stone arch of Titus in Rome. When the sacrifice was concluded, the temple gates were opened and the people gathered in homes throughout Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover Seder and the eating of the Passover sacrifice together with matzot and bitter herb, while songs of joy and praise burst forth from every home. On this day, the high priest performs the entire temple service himself. One aspect of the service involved determining the scapegoat. Two lots kept in a special lottery box were drawn to choose between two goats. One was offered up on the altar. The second, the scapegoat, was sent off into the desert as an atonement for the sins of Israel. During the festival of Sukkot in temple times, the worshippers enter into the temple courtyards bearing their lulavim, the palm branches used during the holiday service, and the other required species. In the course of the festival, a special event was held in the women's court of the holy temple, known as the Festival of the Water Libation. The Levites stood on the 15 steps leading up to the brass Nicanor gates and played numerous musical instruments. From the women's court, the entire assembly would descend to the spring of Shiloach, while bearing a golden flask prepared specially for this occasion. This spring, the original source through which water was brought to Jerusalem, was the symbol of blessing and sustenance for the city. The golden flask was filled with water from this spring and then brought back up to the holy temple with song and great joy. The priest brought the flask up to the top of the altar and poured the contents into the silver cup fixed at the southwest corner of the altar. The water trickled down to the foundation of the altar. 
This service, the water libation, is one of the laws which Moses received at the revelation of Mount Sinai and was also considered to be an auspicious sign for the year's rainfall, accompanied by heartfelt prayers for sustenance and blessing. The multifaceted second temple in its splendor and glory was the source of pride and the focal point of hope for the Jewish people. A familiar blessing recited every Sabbath from the temple stated, He who has caused his name to dwell in this house, may he cause you to dwell in love and brotherhood, in peace and friendship. Indeed, in the face of every crisis that the people endured, the holy temple was always the unifying factor. Right. Did that help? Yeah? Good. All right. Let's open up our Bibles again and we'll continue. By the way, in the, in the video where it talked about the, the water libation... At the Feast of Tabernacles, the water was poured by the priest from the Pool of Siloam. When that water was poured on that last day of the feast, that's where in John chapter 7 it says, Jesus cried out, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers or torrents of living water. That's the background of it as people were gathered in that temple complex. So you you get a good idea of it. Uh, Let's look now in chapter 27, verse 20. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Now, the oil was kept... In the, te- in, the, in the lampstand, the menorah, it had to be burning continually. And as you saw in the video, they burned it or they, they replaced it in the morning and in the evening. Um, in the book of Zechariah, there's an interesting sort of a comment, a vision on this. Um, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah have come back to Jerusalem from Babylon they're faced with what would look like insurmountable odds. It looks like the, the temple will never be rebuilt. Jerusalem will never fully be rebuilt. They feel God has commissioned them to do it, but there's just too many obstacles and too much apathy and lethargy among the people. And so there's this vision and, uh, that Zechariah gets. And God says, what do you see? And he goes, I see the lampstand, but I see this bowl above it. And out of the bowl, there are seven tubes that go into the seven branches. And on either side of the bowl, on the right and left, are two olive trees. And the idea is that the olive tree is giving oil directly to the bowl, and it's an automated system. In the vision, it's automatic. The oil goes from the olive tree through the pressed olives into the bowl above the lampstand, and through tubes, it goes through uh, to the little things holding the oil, the little cups, and the things burning continually. Zechariah goes, what is this? He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, you can't do it, Zerubbabel. You won't be able to rebuild the temple. You can't do it in your own strength, but I promise it'll happen, and it will happen. It won't be by the arm of the flesh or by your armies or by your ingenuity. I'll make sure that Jerusalem is rebuilt and the temple is built. And the vision that he had was of this uh, lampstand in the temple. So because of that vision and other things, oil can become a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Um, In chapter 28, we see the garments of uh, the priest. And we're going to skip around and look at a few of the verses, not read them all. You've got a good visual description there in the video. But in verse 1, now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as a priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, which later on kicked the bucket. Remember in Numbers chapter 10, they offer profane fire before the Lord, and God kills them. 
Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to him all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to sanctify him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that they may minister to me as priests. The Levites, the descendants of Levi, from the tribe of Levi, they were the ones that kept up the tabernacle, made sure it was transported, made sure that it was in place and proper. The sons of Aaron become the priesthood of Israel. And they offer the sacrifices and so forth in the temple. The priests were appointed. You couldn't volunteer. Hey, I'd like to be a priest. It was appointed by God. And uh, it was of the uh, lineage of Aaron. They wear special clothes. And the clothes um, are mentioned, the ephod, the breastplate, and so forth. Um, First of all, let's just look a little bit. In verse 5, they shall make gold and blue and purple and scarlet thread, fine linen. They shall make the ephod of gold, blue and purple, scarlet thread, fine linen thread, artistically woven. The priests wore special clothes. Why? Well, obviously, to set them apart from the rest of Israel. They had beautiful garments made out of linen, fine linen. I mean, these were fine clothes. They were specially for the clergy to set them apart. Holiness to the Lord was on the high priest's head in gold. And, uh, you know, you look at these things and it obviously said, well, there is a man of the cloth, literally. He's got these special clothes. Now, today, I don't think that special clothes are necessary because we don't live in an Old Testament economy. Though some people like them. Some people think, well, listen, I've got to wear a robe or I've got to wear a collar or a habit to distinguish me from the, the common people. But the difference is, in the New Testament, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no priesthood. There is a priesthood of all believers, it says in First and Second Peter. You don't need to go through a person who's special and... Um, who wears the right kind of clothes. And so, you know, I remember when I was in town, oh, about a year, and there was a pastor in town, I'm not going to mention his name, who thought it was very important that I have a robe. And he was doing it as a gesture of kindness. And uh, one of the guys who worked for him called me over, and he says, "Uh, listen, our pastor knows that you don't have a robe, and so he'd like you to select anyone you want. Go into the store and just pick out whatever robe you'd like to officiate. And at first I thought it was a joke. I thought, who put him up to this? But he was really serious. He wanted me to have a robe so that I would really look like a man of God instead of, you know, black jeans and these kind of clothes. And... and, uh, you know, bless his heart. And I said, I don't know how you're going to break the news to him. I don't wear those things. Um, <laughs> I remember, I grew up, and I grew up in a... In a my, my, both of my brothers went to seminary to be priests. They didn't make it. But they did, had the education, and they wore the garments. And uh, uh, they didn't graduate as priests. So my, I was the, the last son. I'm the, la- I'm the baby of the family. I was the last hope to be a priest. And uh, you should have seen the look on my mother's face when after I became a Christian, I said, Mom, I fulfilled your dream. I am a priest. She said, I don't understand. And I showed her the scripture that, that we're a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. We all have access to God. We don't have to go through a human mediator. There's one mediator between God and man. I don't think she still quite gets it to this day, but um, <laughs> the ephod is described, and in verse thirteen, you shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains of pure gold, like braided cords, and fasten the braided chains to the settings. 
This thing was divided into two, and they were joined at the shoulders with stones, and on each side was inscribed in the stones six names of the tribes of Israel, six on the other. As he went in, he bore their names as priest before the Lord. Now, a priest was a representative. He was a representative of the people to God, different from a prophet. A prophet later on becomes a representative of God to the people. A priest represents the people before God. And he bears, it's beautiful, the names on the shoulders, the place of strength before the Lord. Beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, our high priest, it says in the book of Hebrews. And uh, it says that Jesus is ever living to make intercession for us. Is that an awesome thought or what? Jesus Christ prays for you, intercedes for you, bears your name before the Father. And where does he bear them? In that place of strength. The Bible talks about Jesus as the good shepherd carrying the lamb upon his shoulders. Now, Jesus' shoulders are a lot stronger than yours. And he wants to be able to bear you and carry you. You Say, oh, I fail. I, I don't have any strength. That's what Jesus is for. Now, so many times we get off of his shoulders and we wander around and we think, look at me, I'm a strong little sheep. I can do things on my own. And we get caught in the thicket. And I love Jesus. He didn't say, oh, just suffer. He'll seek to bear you on his shoulders again and bring you back to that place of fellowship. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. And so these garments, and upon the garments, in verse 15, the breastplate. I want to kind of further something, because we're comparing the Old Testament with the New Testament. I, as a pastor, see myself on exactly the same level as everyone here, whether you're a baby Christian or whether you're a mature Christian. I have the same access and you have the same access as I do before the Lord. In the book of Revelation, Jesus said to one of the churches, he commended them. He said, because you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nicolaitans has caused a lot of dispute among New Testament scholars as to what Jesus is speaking about, but it comes from two Greek words, nikao, to conquer, and the, you know, laos, the laity, the idea of conquering over the laity or a priesthood over the laity. And that's one of the interpretations. Jesus doesn't like a system that automatically excludes certain people and places others at a higher level before the Lord. We're all at the same level. The cross levels everybody. There is no difference between us. God doesn't, if you're praying and I'm praying, God didn't say, excuse me, Skip's praying right now, right? When he's done, I'll listen to you. But hey, he's a man of the cloth. Listens to all of us the same. That's the beauty of the gospel. There's no priesthood. We're all priests. There's one mediator. And the breastplate in verse 15, you shall make a breastplate of judgment artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold and blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen thread. You shall make it. And all the stones are given. In verse 21, it says, The stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, or the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet. Each one with its own name, they shall be according to the twelve tribes. Uh, look at verse 28. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the ring of the ephod, using the blue cord, so that it is above the intricately woven band in the ephod, as you saw here on the video, and so that the breastplate does not come loose. So they fastened it so it wouldn't bounce around. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes to the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. This breastplate was a pouch. It was doubled, if you read the rest of the chapter, and you, the stones were, it seems, kept within. Now, you saw in the video something very different. You saw how they interpreted the Urim and the Thummim to be the stones of the breastplate, and a letter would glow, and the letters would form that you'd go out in the name of the Lord. 
That is one interpretation of this. The truth is nobody knows. They got that from extra-biblical sources, other Jewish sources, Talmud, oral law. The Bible doesn't say what the Urim and Thummim are. I really don't know, and I'm not going to rely upon these sources. There's other interpretations. I thought I'd bring them out. Some think that the stones were of different colors, black and white, and that they glowed. One stone would glow if it was a yes. One stone would glow if it was a no. Now, there's another interpretation, that there were two sides of each stone, a yes side and a no side. And they were sort of thrown like sanctified dice, for lack of a better term. You can visualize it that way, though. You could ask it a yes or a no answer. It was a question that was asked if there was no other means possible, like the question, shall we go out to battle against the Edomites? You'd throw the stones. If both sides came up yes, it was a yes. If you had a yes and a no, it was no. So, you know, you had a, basically a four to one for a yes over a no, and the idea was that it was a... Um, um, it would have to be the providence of God for it to be a yes. It would, it would be very dramatic. So there's a few different ideas as to how the Urim and Thummim worked. I don't really know, to tell you the truth. I don't really care all that much. Um, they're not around today. I'm glad they're not around today. If they were around today, I can just see the abuses. Things are abused already so much. There are people who you know, claim to have the only method of discerning the will of God and calling all the shots. The great thing about the New Testament is that we have a built-in guidance system. He's called the Holy Spirit, and he lives in each one of us. I remember a few years ago on a local radio station, somebody claimed to be God's prophet. And he always, you know, people would call him up, and they'd say, hey, listen, I want to know if I had to sell my house. I heard this conversations I'm recounting back to you. Okay, just a minute, I'll find out. He'd say this over there, and he goes, Father, so-and-so wants to know if he should sell his house. Oh, oh, really? Oh, Father, you want me to tell him that? Oh, now, and he starts having this supposed conversation. Oh, wait a minute, Lord, like, you know, he's arguing with him or something. And then finally he says, well, God said that you shouldn't sell your house. You should give it away, or you should sell it for half. And then the phone lines would light up. And people were so intrigued that everyone was calling. Instead of praying about it, they were asked, tell me what I should do then about, you know, that land over there. Should I marry that gal? And I'm sitting there, oh, you know, I'm livid. God wants you to go to him. The Lord is your shepherd. God can speak to you. Now, yes, God can use prophets. There is the gift of prophecy. But it must be weighed with the Scripture. There is the word of knowledge. It must be weighed with the Scripture. The Bible talks about another gift that doesn't seem to be a lot of importance around these days. It's called discernment. And if you have discernment, you can say, I think that guy is a kook. And he's leading a lot of people astray and into bankruptcy, actually. And I just, I told him, called the manager, I said, Get, yank that guy off the air. The prophet? Yeah, yank the prophet off the air. <laughs> you have the word of God in your hearts. Every now and then somebody says, uh, uses that Old Testament term, I need to fleece the Lord. Put out a fleece, you know, I got to really find out. Hey, listen, why don't you just say, Lord, do whatever you want to do. I lack wisdom. Give me your guidance. Your spirit lives within me. Show me in the word. Oh, but i got to walk by faith to do that. I'd rather walk by sight. Yeah, but you walk by faith, not by sight. And you will find that as you move and as you make decisions, you pray for wisdom and you don't know the answer and you don't know which way to go. I bet tonight you could look back over your life and you could say, Wow, I see the hand of God in my life. How God has woven things. But I didn't see that while I was walking through it. See, God has guided you supernaturally, naturally. That's how faith can work. You ask God for wisdom, you make choices, and God guides you in the midst of it. The other garments are described. We're not going to go through it. We have lack of time. But uh, it talks about in um, verse 36, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it the, the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord, which you also saw in the video. And um, I want to close with the last few verses. Verse 42, You shall make for them linen trousers, to cover their nakedness, they shall reach from the waist to the thighs. So they were kind of like 
Well, like surf shorts. Yeah, it's the best way I can describe them. Long, baggy shorts. They didn't go all the way to the ankles. They were just probably cool-looking shorts, you know. But uh, these shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come to the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and the descendants after him. And then in the next, the next couple chapters, we talk about uh, how Aaron and his sons are consecrated for next week. But notice the clothing of the priests is not wool, though they had more in abundance of wool than anything else. They were to be linen, and linen is very comfortable. You don't perspire in linen. You perspire in wool. It is interesting that some of the clothing in the past ages for the clergy have been made to be dark and in some cases very uncomfortable and it causes you to perspire and to suffer. You know, I think that you might look at it this way. God wants inspiration, not perspiration. You know, somebody, somebody think, oh, it's got to be, you know, and, they, and, and it, they've taken it out of the realm of the inspiration of God. It's just, it's all perspiration and it's all, you know, uh, uncomfortable. And here these priests had these beautiful garments and it was very comfortable. God had inspired them to serve him. And then in the next chapter, he cleanses them to serve him. So I hope that the combination of the furniture you saw last week and some of the videos you saw this week serve to show you how the tabernacle later on the temple was put together. Because you've seen this, now when we go over this again, there are several chapters that speak about the building of this, we will zip through it. And toward the end of this book, we'll cover easily ten chapters in an evening because we've already read it. And a lot of the book of Exodus says they did what God said to do, and it just rehashes it all. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can get together to learn of Jesus Christ. And we see his types throughout the Old Testament. Lord, I just thank you for a group of hungry people that is interested in learning, seeing how it all fit together, so that we can rejoice together that Jesus Christ, our high priest, after he offered his own blood, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sitting down signifying that the sacrifices don't need to be continually made. They've been made once and for all. And it's a finished work. And we stand as recipients of that tonight, Lord. And we're thankful that the Lamb of God, our Messiah, Jesus, has broken down the wall of division between Jew and and Gentile, male and female, and we're now all one in Christ. How we thank you tonight for that, Lord. We thank you for the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ, which can cleanse a man from all sin. And tonight, Lord, if there's guilt in our own lives, if there are misgivings and deeds that have broken fellowship with you, we want to confess them to you right now, that we can gain that fellowship and access once again. You said if we confess our sins, we're, you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This 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 from all